Listener's warning. There'll be some topics covered in today's episode that are not very appropriate for listeners under the age of 13. Some of these topics will include radical belief systems and a brief discussion involving allegations of animal sacrifice and kidnapping. Thank you for remaining open-minded. And I quote, I had at the time a little rose and cross, five rubies and a five petal rose with a cross of six squared with various inscriptions. And I arranged with myself that when I put this on, I should act in one character. And when I took it off again, in another. This was a great help to me in sorting out the various elements of my being. It was not the matter of the magical personality so much. I simply built up two people of entirely different characteristics. One, for example, might be a scholar, a mountaineer, an explorer, a person of great athletic achievements, generous in disposition, noble, and so on. The other character has a whole lot of other characteristics, very distinct from those of the first, and I used to punish myself if, when I was in one character, I performed any action which was only suited to the other." Unquote. Anthony Masters used this quote from Aleister Crowley in his book, The Devil's Dominion. Masters goes on to say this was Crowley's way of explaining how he dealt with his fractured nature and personality. Having so many interests and pursuits to greatness, you might think that this would make sense. But this Crowley quote leaves me wondering. Maybe this was his way of explaining his involvement as an international spy for Britain. One that potentially had the mission of undermining the New Age spiritual movement and spreading wartime propaganda slandering the country in which he worked for? Or was this the way to explain his detrimental impact on his wives, lovers, and followers? In the pursuit of his own personal will, his lovers and followers would succumb to mental illness, substance addictions, and death. At the height of his fame while he was alive, a whole country would end up exiling Crowley and his followers in the midst of rumors of animal sacrifice and missing newborns. In the second part of my exploration of Aleister Crowley's life and writings, I will be covering the years 1900 to Crowley's death in 1947. This will take us through his creation of his own magical society, his failed relationships, and what would become of the most notorious occult practitioner of the 20th century. Welcome to the Dark Side of Lightwork. I'm Wynne Thornley. In life, I'm a certified and professionally practicing esoteric teacher and channel to the ethers, specializing in demystifying the dark arts. I'm also a supernatural nerd and do a lot of research into things that go bump in the night. My fascination with the unknown began when I was a kid due to having my own misunderstood psychic experiences. I believe my lifelong fascination with the strange and unusual has prepared me for the work I'm called to do now, taking me places other lightworkers will not go. These experiences have taught me a lot about how many fallacies we are told and actually believe about the world of the unknown. Join me as I share with you what I have learned about the realms of the paranormal, mystics of the past, and places that might make you feel uneasy. I want to lift the veil a little bit and take the Hollywood out of the supernatural and metaphysics. And if you like what you hear, I invite you to follow along by subscribing and please tell your friends. To start this episode, I wanted to send a big shout out to three people, Jessica Hughes, Ali Gerber, and Sandra Killerby. 
Thank you so much for joining my Patreon community in the month of March. Your monthly pledge to support the Dark Side of Light work is so appreciated, and it will help me make this podcast and future Patreon exclusive events way easier to create. So I thank you, thank you, thank you, and I appreciate you. And I appreciate you who's listening in right now. Though my podcast is always available to listen to for free, I wanted to provide a space for the growing community here. One where I can offer more unusual and interactive content at a crazy affordable monthly pledge. If you want to learn more about this option to support the expansion of the Dark Side of Light work and future haunted field trips, I invite you to check out my Patreon page after this episode is over. I will leave a link in my show notes for you to consider. When we left Alistair Crowley's story in the last episode, the year was 1900, and Crowley was just removed and isolated from his first mystery society, the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. This didn't deter Crowley from continuing his exploration into conjuring, alchemy, and magical ceremonies, though. Throughout my research for Part 1 and 2, I found that it is by popular opinion that Alistair Crowley was drawn to the more forbidden aspects of magic. He is often labeled as a black magic practitioner, or even a Satanist. I can agree, he dipped his toe into aspects of ceremonial magic that makes me a little uncomfortable, but to say this was black magic, that would be incorrect. Alistair himself felt he was not aligned to black magic at all. From his perspective, everything he practiced was helping him to understand the anatomy of the soul and the stars, and he insists he was always working with the forces of light, and that was his intention. As he was becoming more consumed with understanding the greatest truths of the universe, Crowley was drawn to many religious and spiritual teachings, some of which include Buddhism and Hinduism of India. It ended up being the Egyptian esoteric teachings that tied everything together for Crowley. This is clear from his first occult publication called The Book of the Law, and of his 1912 follow-up publication called The Book of Lies. Within the Book of Lies, there's a running theme within his poetry entries that calls to expose the lies hidden within organized religion and Western esotericism. The desire to dissect and expose the falsehoods of religious and spiritual teachings seem to be part of Alistair's life work. But this might have been more than just a personal pursuit. Crowley spoke openly about being a spy for the British government, Though most folks took this information as just another wild tale or exaggeration crafted by Crowley's imagination, this was one tall tale that turned out to be 100% true. But I'm kind of getting ahead of myself right now. Let me pick up where I left off last episode. What was next for the Great Beast 666 now that he was banished from the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn? One pattern to crop up when Crowley is struggling is a pattern of moving. And if you recall from episode one, Alistair moved quite often as a child. Now that he was a man, he chose to move away from his home and stretch his legs on a new continent. Alistair was headed west. Crowley began his extensive world tour in 1900 and his first stop was Mexico City. There, he would pick up a new love affair with a local gal and continue his commitment to metaphysical studies. By this time, Crowley was deep into the Enochian invocations of John Dee in his private studies. Publicly, Crowley added another layer of mentoring and ceremony while in Mexico City. He claimed that at some point in 1900, 
he was initiated into the secret society known as the Freemasons. I read at some point that uh, Crowley was actually initiated at the highest degree as well, but I couldn't really confirm that because every source was a little different. Most of you have probably heard of the Freemasons, but I wanted to touch upon John Dee and the Enochian teachings just for a second here. I do have a future podcast episode planned that will be all about John Dee, but I'll just share a little bit about him just right now. John Dee was a 16th century Anglo-Welsh mathematician and teacher. Dee was honoured with the role as the court astronomer, astrologer, and advisor to Queen Elizabeth I. What etched his name into occult history was his studies and books he wrote that explored hermetics, alchemy, and angelic beings. Near the end of John Dee's life, he would work very closely with a spiritual medium named Edward Kelly. Together, they recorded a volume containing the Enochian language. This is said to be a language of angelic origin. The volume of the Enochian invocations recorded by Dee and Kelly are still considered important works today within the studies of angelology and demonology for that matter. As Crowley was deepening his connection to spirit, he began to fall in love with Mexico and the many mountain ranges to be explored. Eventually, he sent for his mountaineering buddy, Oscar Erkenstein, whom he had climbed the ranges of the Alps with a few years before. Erkenstein joined Alistair in late 1900, and they were able to climb several areas. Three major areas included the Iktasiwatl, Popocatipetl, and Colima, and I apologize if I butchered any of those pronunciations. Each of these climbs is between 3,800 meters and 5,500 meters. The only climb they had to abandon was the trip to Colima, and this was due to volcanic eruption. Each of these mountains are actually considered volcanoes, with Colima being the youngest and most active volcanic range of the three. Aside from climbing the local volcanoes and playing with magic, Alistair continued to write poetry while he was in Mexico. Expanding past his poetry, Alistair also wrote a play, one that was inspired by a mid-19th century opera by the name of Tannhauser. This was an opera written in 1845 by a man named Richard Wagner. It was about the struggle between sacred and profane love, as well as redemption through love. I did find out that Alistair later published this play and the poems he wrote while in Mexico. He put them all together in one book, first publishing this collection in 1905 under the name Oracles. It was quite easy to find a copy online if you want to check this collection out for yourself. In time, Alistair Crowley would get itchy feet. He decided to travel north to the United States and he made his way all the way to San Francisco. This is where he would board the Japanese merchant ship known as the SS Nippon Maru and sail south to Hawaii and onward to Japan. So a little side note here. I wanted to touch upon the merchant ship SS Nippon Maru. Reason being is that this detail was very specific. Almost all of Alistair's leisure travel to this point in my research had not mentioned ship names or even the mode of transportation. This was a very early time for aviation, with the Wright brothers still about eight years away from preparing for their first public flights, so I assumed that boat, train, and car were the best options for getting around at the time. I was curious why the specific mention of the SS Nippon Maru. Naturally, this led me into doing a little more digging. 
I want to make sure my source for this part of Alistair's journey was accurate, and I wanted to see what I could find out. I came up with something pretty interesting. There have been a few ships with this name and all of Japanese origin. I did find information about the earliest boat with the name SS Nippon Maru, which was active in the late 1800s and early 1900s and followed the itinerary used by Crowley to get from San Francisco to Hawaii and later on to Japan. This boat was actually connected to the bubonic plague outbreak in Hawaii and San Francisco that began in the years 1899 and 1900 respectively. It was said that the SS Nippon Maru was the plague source ship in both Hawaii's and San Francisco's plague outbreak. Please check my show notes later. I left the links I found that talks about this time in history and the impact it made on the establishing Asian community migrating to these American ports. It's not a fun story, but I feel like it's important to know. So back to Crowley. Alistair was not one to let his bed get cold, and while on the SS Nippon Maru, he found himself in an adulterous relationship with a woman named Mary Alice Rogers. Though it was a short-lived affair, Alistair would claim he fell in love with Mrs. Rogers. And this affair is what inspired his poetry collection that he published in 1903 under the title Alice, an Adultery. The affair ended, and life kept moving forward. There was only a brief stop in Japan and then Hong Kong before Crowley ended up in his final destination of Ceylon, Sri Lanka. This is where Alistair and his old mentor, remember Alan Bennett? They would meet up once more. Bennett left for India to learn about Buddhism in 1899, so it had been a couple of years since him and Crowley had done any drugs or rituals together. This would begin Alistair Crowley's exposure to Indian philosophies, including yoga and Hinduism. Though his union with Bennett was brief, it was pivotal to spark Crowley's next journey into self-enlightenment. Bennett would travel to Burma and become a Buddhist monk, and Crowley, he would tour all over India, and eventually end up spending a lot of his time studying at the Manakshi Temple. This is a historic Hindu temple that is located in the temple city of Madurai in the southern state of Tamil Nadu, India. Always craving a mountaineering expedition, Alistair sent for his climbing buddy Oscar Erkenstein once more. He was interested in creating a mountaineering expedition of the famed K2 and Kangchenjunga mountains located in the Himalayan mountain range. These are the second and third highest mountains in the world next to Mount Everest. There is a place called Tiger Hill in Darjeeling, India. This is where you can view the Changchenjunga and the Mount Everest at the same time. Crowley and Erkenstein would gather a few climbing enthusiasts to join the first expedition up the K2 in 1902, and next the Kangchenjunga in 1905. Both would be considered first ascent expeditions because folks just didn't climb these mountains. The first expedition up the K2 returned really good results. It is said by Crowley that the climbing group made the ascent upwards of 6,100 meters before turning back. It was the expedition in 1905 that would add fuel to the nickname the wickedest man in the world. This expedition would take place in 1905, with Jules Chakot Guillermo proposing the plan to Crowley and asking him to be the expedition leader. 
Jules was a famed Swiss photographer and wanted to capture a unique subject. This worked well for Crowley and his ego, as he planned to surpass the altitude record for the Changchen Junga that was already set at 7,315 meters. Crowley and Jules gathered their teammates and some local porters before they all headed out on July 31st, 1905. Crowley proved to be arrogant as a team leader. It was documented that he was especially cruel towards the porters who helped pack up the team's supplies. His climbing mates became appalled at his behavior and lack of care for others. Eventually, this split the group. There were two camps established, with Crowley's camp recorded at having ascended 7,600 meters, breaking the ascension record for the Kangchen Junga by 300 meters. Crowley's group was forced to retreat, though, due to a small avalanche. With the situation already so sketchy, Crowley warned his camp against going back to the second camp until things were safer. Tired of Crowley's controlling and abusive behavior, though, Jules chose to head back with another of his teammates and four porters, all of them descending on a single rope. One of the teammates would end up falling, and this fall would precipitate an avalanche that would then kill three of the porters and Jules' teammate. Climbers who were still at Crowley's camp heard the frantic screams, and one member decided to go and help. Crowley? He stayed in his tent and refused to help. Later that evening, he would even write a letter to the Darjeeling newspaper stating how he warned the group it was unsafe to take the descent and that, quote, a mountain accident of this sort is one of the things for which I have no sympathy whatsoever, unquote. The next day, on his way down the Kangchenjunga, Crowley would pass the site of the accident. He gave no remorse no words for the dead or the survivors. It was as if he had no connection to these people at all. Alistair Crowley walked off that mountain and into Darjeeling, where he claimed the entire funds for the expedition, which was not even his to take. The Swiss photographer was the main contributor to this expedition, and it was under the threat of making Crowley's pornographic poetry public that Jules would eventually receive a portion of his funds back. Now, I did get a little ahead of myself here because the Book of the Law was written two years before the failed mountaineering expedition in the Himalayan mountains. So, what did Crowley do after bumming around India, learning about yoga and the spiritual philosophies of the culture? He would find himself in Paris by November of 1902. Here, Crowley would insert himself into the art scene. This began with Crowley defending the portrait painter Gerald Kelly. Crowley kind of used Kelly to boost his own credibility. Hanging around a well-liked artist like Gerald Kelly would give others in the Parisian art scene the impression that someone like Alistair Crowley was an illuminated visionary, not the rumored great beast he was gaining notoriety as being. Crowley would become close with Gerald Kelly's sister, Rose Edith Kelly. He would eventually take her back with him to Ireland, where they would elope in August of 1903. This act would completely fracture his relationship with Gerald Kelly and the Kelly family. They were appalled by the idea of Rose carrying on with Alistair. The family's resentment? It was due to more than just judging Alistair Crowley's lifestyle and reputation. Rose was already arranged to be married. 
Both Rose and Alistair spoke about their marriage being one of convenience in the beginning. Rose was saved from an arranged marriage, and Crowley gained a housemate with benefits. Being the same age, there was time to grow into love. And Alistair, he began to fall deeply in love with Rose within a short time. He had the burning desire to prove it to her as well. Alistair created a long honeymoon filled with leisure travel and a series of love poems. He published these poems in 1906 under the title of Rosa Mundi and Other Love Songs. By 1904, Alistair and Rose found themselves in Cairo, Egypt. Rose was also with child at this point. The Crowleys decided to extend their stay in Cairo and rent an apartment. Remember from the first episode how Alistair liked to use aliases? This totally continued, and now Rose was involved. While in Cairo, they assumed the identities of Prince Chiawa Khan and Princess Khan. Alistair was a bit of an asshat when it came to these aliases, going as far as demanding Rose's family call them by these new names, and at all times. Crowley was petty enough to return a letter from Rose's mom that contained exclamation points that mocked her daughter's alias. But by now, Alistair and Rose were in love. Alistair had a grand plan to show his new bride how much she meant to him. He created a temple space within their Cairo apartment where, quote, In an undoubtedly frivolous attempt to impress my wife, I tried to shoo the sylphs, unquote. Sylphs are elemental spirits of the air, and Crowley was attempting to conjure them for his wife through what is known as the preliminary invocation of the Goetia, also known as the Bornless Ritual. Though she didn't see anything herself, this ritual would slip Rose into a light trance. It is documented that while Rose was in this trance, she informed Alistair that, quote, They are waiting for you. Unquote. And soon it would be revealed who they are. Two days after Crowley attempted to conjure the sylphs, the pair were wandering the streets of Cairo. Rose, who was five months pregnant at this time, became delirious. She proclaimed that, quote, The equinox of the gods has come. Unquote. Rose then led her husband to the Egyptian museum. And they have never been here before. Let's remember that. It was here where Rose began to explain that the they she spoke about was actually the Egyptian god Horus. She told Alistair that she would lead him to the right image of Horus that he needed to see. As they passed by several statues and images of Horus, Rose eventually stopped at one particular exhibit. It was a wooden slab, something that they would call a steel. This steel was coated with a plaster gesso, and the name of it was Steel of Ankh F.N. Konsu. The image painted on the steel is a detailed depiction of a priest named Montu presenting some offerings to the falcon-headed god that is known as Re Herakarti. Without getting too deep into Egyptian mythology, as I definitely have a major weakness in this area at this time, I wanted to share with you what I learned about the symbolism of this particular steel. And this is important because this Egyptian steel, it became the central element of Crowley's future religious philosophy of Thelema. The god, Re Herakarti, represents the syncretic relationship of the sun god Ra and the god of kingship and the sky, Horus. More so, 
there are representations of the goddess Nut and of the winged solar disk. Nut, who is also known as Nuit, is the goddess who rules the sky, stars, astrology, and the universe in Egyptian mythology. The winged solar disk? This is a symbol that is associated with divinity, royalty, and power. Crowley was taken aback, not by the image at first, but as he realized the number of this exhibit was listed as 666, the same number of the great beast of the Bible, the same nickname his mother gave to him and the one he embraced after his father's death. And this is when Alistair became clear on what was to be the next stage of his journey. After Alistair and Rose left the Egyptian museum, they returned to their Cairo apartment. Alistair was super keen to get into his temple and begin communing with these new gods who were waiting for him. Beginning on April 8th, 1904, Alistair claims he began interacting with a disembodied voice. This voice belonged to a messenger of Horus and his race of gods. This is how Alistair described his encounter with the entity who revealed himself as Iowas. Quote, the voice of Iowas came apparently over my left shoulder from the furthest corner of the room. It seemed to echo itself into my physical heart in a very strange manner, hard to describe. I have noticed a similar phenomenon when I've been waiting for a message fraught with great hope or dread. The voice was passionately poured as if Iowas was alert about the time limit. The voice was of deep timber musical and expressive, its tone solemn, voluptuous, tender, fierce, or aught else has suited the mood of the message. Not bass, perhaps a rich tenor or baritone. The English was free of either native or foreign accent, perfectly pure of local or caste mannerisms, thus startling and even uncanny at first hearing. I had a strong impression that the speaker was actually in the corner where he seemed to be, in a body of fine manner, transparent as a veil or gauze, or a cloud of incense smoke. He seemed to be a tall, dark man in his thirties, well-knit, active and strong, with the face of a savage king, and eyes veiled, lest their gaze should destroy what they saw. The dress was not Arab, it uh, suggested Assyria or Persia, but very vaguely. I took little note of it. For me at the time, Iowas was an angel, such as I had often seen in visions, as being purely astral. Unquote. How the story goes is that Iowas told Crowley to write down everything that is spoken to Crowley in their time together. This time limit is set to be one hour each day, taking place over three days. At the end of all this, it would be Alistair Crowley's job to publish this work under the title of Liber El Vel Ligus, translated as the Book of the Law. And so this is what Alistair did. Beginning at noon on April 8th, 9th, and 10th of 1904, Crowley recorded word for word what Iowa shared with him over a period of one hour. By day three, the Book of the Law was said to be completed with three chapters recorded. I have been curious about this book for years. Of course, this was something I found hard to share with anybody, even within my woo-woo circles. Kind of like the Necronomicon. That's another book that has energy that spooks people out for no good reason. At one time, 
I believed Crowley to be this great beast, conjurer of demons and entities. But the more you learn about metaphysics, the more you learn that Hollywood and TV has it all exaggerated. Reading through the Book of the Law, you can tell it is a result of a channeling session. Whether it was an automatic writing session from his higher self, or from a channeled being from a different density, it's tough to say. Crowley always insisted Iowas was a separate entity from himself, possessing far more knowledge and wisdom. Later in life, Crowley would even call Iowas his personal holy guardian angel. Yet, uh, the book of the law is written in a style of a poet who was inspired by biblical verses and Egyptian mythology. It is bright and inspiring, but there are also parts that are cryptic and hard to decipher, especially if you've never studied anything in the realm of alchemy, mysticism, mythologies, or hermetics. But when you know what to look for, you can see this picture way more clearly. The poetic story is written in first-person narrative by the Thelemic deities known as Nuit, Hadit, and Rahor Kuit. The first chapter is spoken by Nuit, the Egyptian goddess of the night sky called the Queen of Space. The second chapter is spoken by Hadid, who refers to himself as the complement of Nu, or his bride, Nuit. As such, he is the infinitely condensed point, the center of her infinite circumference. The third chapter is spoken by Ra or Kuit, the god of war and vengeance, also identified as Hur Par Krat, the crown and conquered child. Initially, Crowley rejected the book. It was something that challenged his beliefs and spiritual practices. I mean, he just wanted it to go away. There were additional instructions given from Iowas to Alistair in order to complete his duties required of the Book of the Law. Iowas said Alistair was to acquire the steel marked 666 from the Egyptian Museum by any means possible. Next, he was supposed to purchase and fortify a private island. And lastly, Alistair was told to have the Book of the Law translated into all of the languages of the world. Alistair did none of this. Over time, he took the original manuscript and did share it with some of his close confidants, but then it was lost for a few years. It was not until 1909 where Crowley would finally publish an edited edition of the Book of the Law. This is what Alistair Crowley said about finally making the book available to the public. Quote, The book of the law annoyed me. I was still obsessed by the idea that secrecy was necessary to a magical document, that publication would destroy its importance. I determined, in a mood which I can only describe as a fit of ill temper, to publish the book of the law and then get rid of it forever. Unquote but it would be years before Crowley would get to this point. After the initial channeling of the Book of the Law, it was not long before Alistair and Rose became parents to Lilith Crowley, who was born in July of 1904. After Lilith's arrival, the Crowley family all traveled together. Alistair would plan mountaineering trips and packing trips across China. They hired a nanny and porters to support this rugged style of travel. Alistair admits that his desire for family life was beginning to bore him. It was a challenge keeping his wife and toddler happy as he continued to smoke opioids, climb mountains, and work his magic. Rose became more and more dependent on substances herself in this time. 
leaning on alcohol to lift her spirits. After the failed Kangchenjunga expedition, Crowley met up with his wife and daughter in Calcutta in West Bengal. After this visit, the family traveled all across northwestern China, making their way to Vietnam. After reaching Vietnam, Rose chose to take Lilith and return home to Europe. Lilith would never survive the trip home. Alistair learned upon his arrival home to his family in 1906 that Lilith died due to typhoid in Rangoon, the capital city of what was then called Burma, today's Myanmar. Resentful over the loss, Alistair would blame Rose's growing dependence on alcohol as the main reason that led to Lilith's death. This event would forever be a sore spot for the couple and would lead Alistair to begin to distance himself from Rose. Though they did conceive and have another child named Lola Zaza in 1907, Alistair was consistently stepping out on his wife with a host of prostitutes and women of influence. The women of influence included him taking up romances with actress Vera Neville and author Ada Leverson. These particular affairs were pretty public and hurtful for Rose. For Alistair, it was justifiable. He was bored at home. Do what thou wilt, right? One of Alistair's patterns in life was the ability to flip a switch on where his loyalties lie, which always began with himself first and last. There seemed to be a lack of empathy and connection to others on his part, almost like he didn't feel safe building long-term relationships. This, coupled with an inflated sense of importance, would lend to his notoriety and severely impact his end of life. In 1907, the year of Lola's birth, Alistair reconnected with an old mentor by the name of George Cecil Jones. Together, they would jump back into conducting ceremonial magic together, doing so while using huge amounts of hashish. This inspired Crowley to compose an essay he titled The Psychology of Hashish, in which he celebrated this concentrated form of cannabis. He went as far as to encourage the use of hash during channeling and mystical meditations. He claimed hash had the ability to enrich these experiences. In the time of Jones and Crowley channeling on hashish, they made several attempts to contact Iowas together, eventually leading to Crowley receiving extra chapters for the Book of the Law. By the end of 1907, Jones and Crowley decided to found their own occult society in an attempt to pick up where the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn left off. The result was Argentinum Astrum, translated to Silver Star. For short, we'll call this magical society AA. Within the AA, Crowley and Jones propagated the Law of Thelema. The first holy book of Thelema was the channeled Book of the Law, hailing Iowas as the authority of this work. Members of the AA share their dedication to the advancement of humanity through the perfection of the individual. This is done through levels of learning that include theories and practices from the Kabbalah, Buddhism, and the Vedic philosophies. Basically, the Golden Dawn teachings blended with the new Thelema teachings care of Iowas. The AA was composed of two orders known as the Inner and the Outer College. The Outer College was formulated by Crowley and Jones. They would train initiates on the authority of Iowas and another group referred to as the Secret Chiefs. Yes, the Secret Chiefs were the same group of planetary spiritual guides connected to the Third Order of the Golden Dawn. Those who prescribe to the teachings of the AA are encouraged to read 
and personally comprehend the Book of the Law and expanded chapters later added by Crowley. Beyond this, members are encouraged to learn from all belief systems that they can. In 1907, Crowley was teaching and mentoring for a fee. Today, his legacy of AA takes no money for training and offers a list of publications they recommend to their initiates. I assumed this is what they refer to as the inner college. AA is a system of spiritual development designed to give permission to the individual to seek what is right and true for themselves, with, of course, a few nudges along the way. By 1919, there would be an alignment of the AA to another mystery society, one that Alistair would influence heavily. Crowley would ultimately reorganize its central teachings from European Freemasonry to the religious teachings of his Thelema. This society is known as the Ordo Templi Orientis, or more commonly, the OTO, and it is still active today. Crowley was initiated into this magical society while spending time in Algeria in 1912. He liked their acceptance of the more taboo areas of magic, which included sex magic. This would add the next layer of wickedness for Aleister Crowley, and I'll get into that in a minute here. Let's get back to Rose and Lola. The year is 1909, and both Alistair and Rose can see that their time as husband and wife is coming to a close. Alistair was heavy into his drugs and extramarital affairs. Rose was deeper into her alcoholism. The couple agreed to divorce. Adultery was listed as the reason for the split. Whether it was Crowley who filed for divorce on the grounds of adultery or Rose, it really depends on the source you read. But what remains consistent is that the cheating spouse was listed as Alistair. After their divorce, Rose and Lola were moved into Crowley's home, Bullskin House. Rose and Lola lived there until Rose was committed to a mental hospital in 1911, and this was by her ex-husband, Alistair Crowley. It was documented her condition was labeled as alcoholic dementia. Rose later died in 1932. I didn't do too much research into Lola Zaza Crowley, and this was only due to her father having such an extensive life to cover. Some of the things I can tell you are that Lola eventually disowned her father as she reached adulthood. She would go on to marry in 1934, and they would welcome a daughter in 1935. Lola lived well into old age, passing away in 1990 at age 83. It was around the time of Alistair and Rose's divorce where Crowley was already beginning to recognize his fortune was dwindling and his debts were mounting. This is where he began charging for teaching and finding funds through the new alliance with the OTO. Crowley also released a biannual magazine called The Equinox, the official publication of the AA. As far as I read, it is still in publication today. This creative project led to an old mentor coming back into Crowley's life, Samuel Liddell McGregor Mathers, the man who initiated Crowley into the Golden Dawn back in 1898. Mathers was furious to see Alistair publishing Secrets of the Golden Dawn in his periodical The Equinox. So much so, he sued Crowley, with a judge ruling in Crowley's favor in 1910. Mathers and Crowley would then engage in psychic warfare until Mathers' death. While Crowley was in Algeria exploring the new alliance of the AA with the OTO, he got deeper into sex magic and conjuring demons with a blood sacrifice. 
And this act would also be embellished by rumor, by the way. I read it was a frog Crowley used for a blood sacrifice in this instance, but this ritual was taking Crowley into the darker side of magical work. And it actually led him into adding sexual elements to the higher levels of initiation into the OTO. After being sued by Mathers in 1910, life went on and Crowley was eager to spread the word of Thelema and the AA. He would stage something called the Rite of Artemis, which is performance magic and symbolism that's used by the AA. These public performances were first held at the AA headquarters and the attendees, while well, they were offered peyote spiked punch, you know, to enhance their experience. These performances brought really good reviews from the press and followers. So much so, Crowley decided to try the same thing with a public performance of what he called the Rites of Eleusius, which was similar to the Rites of Artemis, but focuses on the planetary bodies of our solar system. He held this performance at the Caxton Hall in Westminster, London, and this came with mixed reviews. One particular member of the press who was especially affected by this performance was a reporter for the Looking Glass newspaper, Mr. West DeWend Fenton. He wrote that Crowley was, quote, one of the most blasphemous and cold-blooded villains of modern times, unquote. This didn't particularly bother Crowley, but this review and the accusation Fenton wrote of Crowley and George Cecil Jones being in a homosexual relationship would cause distance between some of Alistair's followers and co-collaborators of these public performances, Jones being one of them. Crowley was even in a relationship at the time with Australian violinist by the name of Leela Waddle, so Alistair found it laughable that Jones was so upset. George Cecil Jones went on to sue the paper for publishing false statements. Jones lost this case and went his separate way. By 1914, Alistair had already published his next poetic spiritual text known as the Book of Lies, and he was also appointed the head of the British branch of the OTO, which was called Mysteria Mystica Maxima, or the MMM. The man who appointed Alistair was the German occultist Theodore Roos. Crowley adopted the magical name of Baphomet after his OTO initiation. Baphomet is known as a deity thought to be worshipped by the Knights Templar and was eventually adopted in 1966 by the Church of Satan. They actually still use Baphomet to symbolize Satanism today. Baphomet's most famous depiction is an image drawn by a man named Eliphas Levi from 1856. It shows Baphomet as a half-man, half-goat, sitting cross-legged, with one hand to the stars and one hand to the earth. It is said that this deity offers greater absorption of knowledge. The name Baphomet began appearing in the writings of the Knights Templar beginning in 1307. The Devil's Card, the one from the tarot decks, it also uses the Baphomet-style imagery in traditional decks, and there's so much more on this deity. So naturally, Crowley later worked Baphomet into his Thelema teachings as an important figure. With his fortune all but dried up by 1914, Alistair was living hand-to-mouth and relied on the membership fees he received from the AA to help keep him afloat. 
Since Rose was locked away in asylum by this time, Crowley ended up transferring the title of his Bullskin house over to the MMM, and this was for financial reasons. This gave Alistair a little more freedom as well, so he set his sights on the USA. In October of 1914, Alistair boarded the RMS Lusitania heading for New York. Interesting. Another mention of a boat that I felt I needed to research, and this time the name sounded familiar to me. The RMS Lusitania was the British ocean liner that was sunk on May 7, 1915 by a German U-boat. This was off the coast of Ireland, and it resulted in the death of 198 passengers and crew members. This was only seven months after Crowley boarded and only two years before the U.S. declared war on Germany. Alistair sure had a way of finding himself on two ships with dark connections to history. Is it kind of weird? Or is it kind of a line? What are you thinking at this point? Anyways, so Crowley arrives into New York Harbor on Halloween day in 1914 and he gets to work right away. He lands a job writing for the American edition of Vanity Fair, and he picked up freelance work for the famed American astrologer named Evangeline Adams. He was also a spy. In 1919, Alistair Crowley admitted, quote, I was employed by the Secret Service, my main object being to bring America into the war, unquote. And this was absolutely confirmed by the British consulate. Alistair Crowley took his time and he began spreading propaganda against his homeland of Britain. He told people he was of Irish ancestry, a supporter of Irish independence and the pro-German movement. Beginning in January of 1915, a German spy named George Sylvester Weirich employed Crowley to write for his propagandist paper, The Fatherland. This publication was dedicated in keeping the U.S. neutral in the British-German conflict. Alistair's writing for the Fatherland were often exaggerated, and most times his stunts were orchestrated to make the German lobby appear ridiculous in the public's eyes. Kind of like the time he declared independence for Ireland in front of the Statue of Liberty, and this was reported in the New York Times. There was some that actually argued that Alistair encouraged the German Navy to sink the RMS Lusitania, saying it would ensure the U.S. would stay out of the war, while secretly hoping this would pull the U.S. into the war, creating an ally out of the British forces. And again, this information varies on where you search. During his time in North America, Alistair traveled throughout the States and even went as far as Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Here, he rubbed elbows with the head of the Canadian OTO headquarters and discussed how to expand the teachings of Thelema across Canada. In this time of traveling the States and Western Canada, Alistair maintained his private experimentation with sex magic and conjuring all doped up. At this time in his life, he used female prostitutes and male clients of Turkish bathhouses to fulfill his needs. Many of these sex workers did not know they were being used for ritual sex magic either. 
But he was living by his own will, with little care for any others. After his time in Canada, he went on to explore lots of California and Nevada, and this included the Grand Canyon. He even lived in New Orleans for a short period of time, calling this his favorite American city. And this was before he returned to New York and finally his homeland of Britain in 1920. By now, Crowley was destitute and catching flack in the press for his double agent spy antics in the States. But this didn't worry Alistair. He was more focused on his health at this time and his next moves with the AA and the OTO. His asthma was causing so many problems in his life that he actually went to visit his doctor at this time. Of course, the doctor prescribed heroin for his asthma and this would ignite Alistair's 27 years of addiction to this drug. Next, Alistair would move to Paris with his new love interest, a lady named Leah Hersig. She was a Swiss noblewoman and devotee to Crowley. It would not be long before Leah and Alistair welcomed a daughter named Anne and a sister wife named Nanette Shumway. The two women would share Alistair and the duties of raising little Anne and Nanette's two children. What they didn't know yet is they were about to move and become part of the most misunderstood acts known to be committed by Alistair and his followers. This brings us to Italy. Crowley had a grand idea of forming a community of Thelemites, like a commune type thing. After meditating and consulting the I Ching, Alistair set his sights on Cefalu, Sicily. This is a coastal city and one where Alistair had social privacy as this was an area of the world he had never really traveled to. Packing along Leah, the three children, and lover Nanette, they began renting the old Villa Santa Barbara on April 2nd, 1920. He would later rename this villa the Abbey of Thelema. Followers would come from all over the world to live and learn from Alistair. To make the Abbey more his own, Alistair would paint the walls with AA symbolism, sexually charged images, and other occult-style pieces. By day, he would teach and perform rituals for his devotees and pass along cruel punishments the initiates had to perform on themselves. One such punishment was having to cut oneself with a razor blade each time someone used the word I to describe themselves. Since the law of Thelema is do what thou wilt, initiates were encouraged to find their true will and study the holy books of Thelema. Namely, it was all Crowley's work. With the lack of anybody having responsibility, this often led to unsanitary living conditions, drug and alcohol-fueled days, and a lack of attention to roaming animals and children. But this never seemed to deter new devotees from arriving. This brings me to the arrival of a man named Raoul Loveday. Loveday arrived at the Abbey in 1923 with his wife, Betty May. Betty May detested life at the Abbey and Crowley himself, but she stayed with her husband to keep watch as she felt her husband was blindly devoted to Alistair. Things went horribly wrong for Betty when Raoul died in the Abbey in February after their arrival. Though Crowley took no responsibility for his death, the autopsy revealed a liver infection brought on by drinking from a polluted stream. Betty May shared a story of a blood ritual that took place just days before Raoul's death. She said that Loveday was forced to drink the blood of a sacrificial cat. 
and she was the one who revealed the razor cutting and other atrocities at the Abbey. Betty May shared this all with the press upon her return to London. And it was this incident that inspired reporter John Bull to proclaim that Alistair Crowley was the wickedest man in the world and a man we'd like to hang. It would be the death of Love Day, animal sacrifice, and swirling rumors of lost children and newborns that would cause the Italian government to kick Crowley and his Thelemites out of the country and for good. Today, the abbey still stands, though it is in shambles. The locals consider this space haunted, and one is cautioned away from entering inside. The local legend says that there is a demonic energy or even an open portal to hell that is in this old abbey. It is said to be left behind by Crowley and his followers. I left a link in my show notes that will take you to a video of a Crowley follower who actually takes you through the old abbey himself. It's kind of interesting. In the years between 1923 and 1940, Alistair would work with many more AA initiates, get married for a second time, and continue to battle heroin abuse. His second marriage took place in 1929 to Maria Ferrari de Miramar. Alistair called her the High Priestess of Voodoo as she too was deep into magical studies. This marriage only lasted a year as Crowley started up a relationship with a 19-year-old which was just too much for Maria to bear. Maria ended up with the same fate as Rose. She entered a mental institution after the breakdown of her marriage, and this allowed Crowley to abandon her and divorce her with ease. When it came to his heroin addiction, Alistair did enter rehab twice, only to reach for heroin again later in life. He created more collections of poetry, picked up work writing for different publications, and even requested to help out with wartime intelligence during the start of World War II only to be declined later. His traveling was done now out of the necessity to spread the work of Thelema and the two organizations attached to those teachings. Alistair declared himself the head of the OTO when Theodore Roos passed away as well. He said this was the will of Roos, but the head of the German headquarters, Heinrich Tranker Tranker, he disagreed. This disagreement ended up splitting the OTO into four groups that it is today and Crowley remained the head of the British OTO right up until his death. By the year 1935, Alistair was broke and looking for some quick cash. He famously launched a series of court cases against people who slandered his name. Most famously, he sued a publisher named Constable & Company for publishing Nina Hamnett's book, Laughing Torso. He claimed that Hamnett was falsely accusing him of practicing black magic, which he was always strongly disagreeing with. He lost this case, and many others, and life went on. As the years went by, Alistair would attune himself to whatever level of magician he saw fit, and he would reach the highest ranks by 1940. By now, he was trying to keep his asthma at bay without a lot of his success. He ended up turning back to heroin to treat this condition when his other prescribed drugs were really hard for him to source. He had decided it was time to begin working with those Thelemites who would be his successors once he was gone. The first would be a man by the name of Carl Germer, and after him, a devoted American Thelemite named Grady 
McMurdy. Grady McMurdy would be one of the last initiates Crowley would personally train. When this was all taken care of, Alistair began working with an OTO initiate named Lady Frida Harris, and together they designed and produced a tarot deck called the Thoth Tarot. With this deck accompanied a book called the Book of Thoth, and publication began through Chris Wick Press beginning in 1944. Alistair and Harris's deck and books are actually still in print today and can be pretty much found anywhere you buy your mystical stuff and magical books. Crowley designed the cards and Harris created the paintings. This deck by its look and style are packed with symbolism and color. It's a beautiful deck and a little different from the normal tarot story as Crowley included elements of Thelema within his tarot. By 1944, Crowley relocated to Hastings in Sussex. He ended up taking residence in the Neatherwood boarding house. Here, he spent his last years working with the last of his students and visiting with some well-known illusionists, authors, and other visionaries. It was through getting to know the illusionist Arnold Crowther that Alistair would be introduced to Gerald Gardner. They would become really good friends, and this would lead Alistair to authorizing Gardner to reviving the ailing British faction of the OTO. For those of you in the witchy know, you know that Gerald Gardner would go on to be the future founder of Gardnerian Wicca. For those who are not in the know, Gardnerian Wicca is usually considered to be the earliest created tradition of Wicca, from which most subsequent Wiccan traditions are derived. Whether this is true or not would take a little more research on my part, so if you know more about this, let me know on my Anchor FM page. Leave me a message. By late 1947, Crowley's health was degrading at a rapid rate. He accepted visits from friends, family, and children only by this point. On December 1st, 1947, Alistair Crowley died at the age of 72. His autopsy stated that Crowley died of chronic bronchitis, aggravated by inflammation of the lung tissues and degeneration of his heart muscles. His funeral was small, with only around a dozen people in attendance. It was held on December 5th at the Brighton Crematorium. Louise Wilkinson, British author, he read excerpts from the Gnostic Bible, the Book of the Law, and the Hymn of Pan. Of course, the press twisted the funeral event and labeled it as a black mass, but after cremation, Crowley's remains were sent to the successor of the OTO, Carl Germer, who was in the U.S. at the time. Germer buried Alistair's ashes in his home garden located in Hampton, New Jersey. What a life. And I didn't even get to fill you in on all the details either. Did you know that after the death of Hitler, Alistair outed him as a black magic practitioner? And did you know that Alistair Crowley is responsible for adding the K to the end of magic? He wanted there to be a recognizable difference between what is considered basic conjure magic and what is considered transformational and alchemical magic. Some more information I found included his expanded role and involvement in the British Intelligence Agency. Apparently, it did not start and stop with World War I and spreading false wartime propaganda. 
I watched a show on my streaming channel, Great Courses, that is all about secret societies. In one episode, the host talks about how Alistair was also mucking around as a spy for the British intelligence while he was in the Golden Dawn. Alistair's mission was to find out what was going on with the Golden Dawn's involvement with the secret society called the Irish Brotherhood and their hidden mission to remove the current royal family and reinstate the family they figured was the correct lineage. Alistair was so disruptive in that group that it almost caused the total demise of the Golden Dawn, just what Crowley's employers would be pleased with if it was the case that he was already working for the British Secret Service. The host also mentioned that the OTO was aligned with the German secret intelligence as well, and this is why Alistair was easily initiated into the OTO. He gained trust with the head German contact of the OTO, Theodore Roos, who believed he was initiating Crowley as an ally, not realizing he was already working for the British Secret Service. I know I didn't get to all the nooks and crannies of Alistair Crowley's life, and it leaves a little bit for you to research now. I really made my best efforts to include his high and low points, and really, it would take a third episode to go over all of his writings and love affairs in detail. So I hope I did Alistair Crowley's story justice. After going through this extensive research project, it is easy for me to sit back and see why Alistair Crowley is one of the most if not the most influential occult practitioner of the 20th century. Thank you so much for popping by and spending time with me today. I really appreciate you being here. I'm excited for the growth and change happening for season two, and I would love to hear your feedback. The dark side of light work is where I will be exploring topics of the strange and unusual that I have long researched myself. My intention is to bring light to the darker subjects others shy away from in spirituality, energy work, and the paranormal. Show topics will include mysterious places, infamous hauntings, stories of the unusual, and psychics from recent history and antiquity like Alistair Crowley. I invite you to leave a message at my Anchor FM page letting me know how you like it. You can also share your own personal experience with a show topic or even share a show idea. I listen to each message and may include your idea or recording in a future episode. Since I'm an independent podcast host and producer, a five-star review on Apple Podcasts would really help others find my show. If you like what you hear on the Dark Side of Light work, I invite you to share a rating and review on the podcast provider you're tuned in on right now. Outside of my podcast platforms, you can find me on my Patreon page and social media by searching for the Dark Side of Light work. If you like bonus content, I invite you to become a Patreon for only $5 a month. Your contribution helps with the growth and expansion of the Dark Side of Light work, and I have lots planned for exclusive content for my loyal Patreon community as the year rolls out. Any support is welcome, and I feel grateful for all the support I have already. Thank you so much. In my next episode, I'm going to share what I've learned about the Bamberg Witch Prison. There was a time when it was incredibly dangerous to practice anything that was considered wicked by the Catholic Church. The witch hunt hysteria that began in Germany in the mid-1600s led to the building of Drudenhaus, 
in the town of Bamberg. This was one of few segregated prisons built to house those accused of witchcraft. The Bamberg Witch Prison was the largest and most famous of these prisons built in Germany. Thank you once again for listening until the end. I look forward to dropping the next episode real soon. So until then, take good care.